Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government for teachers, students, and citizens. So welcome everyone to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org Saturday webinar sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University, TeachingAmericanHistory.org, or TAH.org for short is the leading online resource for the documents-based study of American history, government, and civics with a lot of resources for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett, uh, teach here at Ashland University, um, co-chair of of our uh, MA and American History and Government program as well. And um, the theme of this year's webinar series is Moments in Crisis. Uh, I see a lot of familiar names uh, in the uh, list of attendees and and friends, Uh, but in case you're here for the first time, let me just mention the purpose of these uh, webinars is to pull together uh, a couple of thoughtful scholars uh, on this particular subject, and we have two very thoughtful ones again with us today, and just have a conversation about um, a moment of crisis in American history this year. All of you, of course, are encouraged to uh, jump into that conversation by submitting questions in the chat box and I will try to get to as many of those questions as possible. And of course, if our, uh, our, our scholars joining us, Professor Stevens and Sands, feel free to, if you see a question you really want to tackle as well, just go for it. Uh, we usually get quite a few good questions and we'll try to get to as many as possible. Um, I'm also supposed to tell you that in the next week you'll receive a link with, uh, uh, or sorry, you'll receive an email with a link by which you can request a certificate of participation and that email will also include a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. So today's topic is, uh, today's crisis in, uh, in American history is the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. And I'm happy to have, have back for the second week in a row, or second month in a row, uh, Eric Sands of Berry College, who has written on Lincoln, and, uh, and Professor Jason Stevens, my colleague here at Ashland University who has also written some articles uh, and, and, and pieces on Lincoln as well. So two very thoughtful Lincoln scholars joining us today. Thanks again for being here to both of you. Thanks so, for having us. So uh, so just to sort of frame this, uh, again, because the theme is crisis, moments of crisis. Um, uh, uh, insofar as this was a crisis, uh, just to kind of frame this, of course, we're at the end of the Civil War, we're, we're, we're toward the end of the Civil War. Everybody's, at least uh, Lincoln and people in the North seem to see the direction the war is taking. The end is in sight, perhaps, right? It certainly seems to be the case, especially after Richmond falls in early April. And, and of course, a few weeks later, or a week or so later, um, uh, General Lee surrenders his army at, at uh, Appomattox uh, Courthouse. And uh, things seem to be finally going Lincoln's, uh, Lincoln's way. The war seems to have been, uh, after nearly four years of war, um, uh, coming to a close in, in the way that Lincoln had hoped that it would. And, and Lincoln is assassinated, as, as we all know, right? Shot by John Wilkes Booth uh, April 14th while he was attending the play. Uh, my American Cousin, I believe, right? At, at yeah, Theater. our American cousin. Our American cousin, sorry, our American cousin, yes, right. And Lincoln is shot by John Wilkes Booth. So 
Uh, clearly a traumatic moment for a lot of people, but could either of you start perhaps by saying what was the reaction uh, in the mind of the public uh, to the news that Lincoln was assassinated? I'm especially curious if, any, if either of you know, I mean, I can imagine the reaction in the North was um, one of general sadness. Was there any, uh, do you know of any uh, kind of rec <laughs> reaction from the South? Were, were people writing in the South? Uh, about the significance of this event at the time or, or talking about it. And then if you don't mind enlightening us to that, and then maybe then step back from this and, um, and, and address whether or not there was a sense that this was a real crisis hmm. um, in the sense that at least the war seemed to be coming at a close, to a close. And what sense might Lincoln's assassination, Lincoln as an individual figure, in what sense might that have marked a crisis in the minds of some people? So would either of you mind starting, perhaps, with with that perspective on things? Yeah, I can I can start and trying to respond to to those really good questions. At least I can sort of respond in part. Um, I think the first thing to to take note of is that this is the the first time in American history that an American president is assassinated while in office. Uh, American presidents had died of natural causes in office before, um, but this was the first time an American president was assassinated. And so it really is a, a shock, a, a jolt uh, to the whole country. And combine that with the fact, um, the facts that you already observed, Chris, that we're at the end of the Civil War. Things seem to be wrapping up. Uh, Lee has just surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse Right, what was a mere few a few days, a few days beforehand, um, four days I think, um, and just as the the country is beginning to look forward to to reconstruction, um, they are dealt this this heavy blow of of Lincoln's assassination, uh, and so it is it is a crisis to the extent that especially when it's combined with the the events of the the end of the Civil War and looking forward, Lincoln is not going to be there. Uh, to to guide the nation through reconstruction, uh, so that is that is really a um, a crisis to the extent that we didn't really know exactly where we were heading. Now with Lincoln's death, everything is up in the air. Everything is thrown up in the air, and that is sort of the purpose that John Wilkes Booth and his co-conspirators um, had in in um, orchestrating the the assassination of Lincoln, and then the the attack on. Uh, on Seward and the, the failed assassination attempts on him and, and other members of Lincoln's cabinet, including uh, Vice President Johnson. Uh, as far as the reaction to Lincoln's assassination in the South, uh, the purpose um, that John Wilkes Booth uh, had in mind beyond the killing of the president was to galvanize the South. Uh, into continuing on with the fight. Uh, this purpose was not so much, Booth's purpose was not so much revenge, although that is certainly a part of it. It was to uh, reinvigorate the South, uh, to, to continue the Civil War, because for, for Booth, the war was never really over, uh, despite Lee's surrender. And that doesn't come to pass. Right. Certainly there were those in, in the South who, who celebrated Lincoln's death, but it doesn't have the purpose that, that Booth intended. That is galvanizing the South to, to continue on to push with the fight. Um, everybody North and South 
knows that the fight is over and Lincoln is its last casualty. So, um, well, that's, that's, by the way, that's really uh, well put, Jason, and very interesting. So, the, if I understand that correctly, the, the effect of Lincoln's assassination, it didn't really call into question, at least in the minds of Northerners, it didn't call into question the ultimate outcome of the war. Is that, is that correct? I mean, it, Although yeah, I don't think I I don't think so at least. I think still it's it's pretty well known in north and south that the the war is is pretty much over. It is coming to its conclusion. What is thrown into doubt is what happens next. I see. Okay. Yeah, that what happens with reconstruction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the so the but if if one of Booth's intentions was to galvanize the south to keep them fighting mm -hmm. um when, when did the when was the final surrender? Was it in May? It was about a month or so, a month and a, and, and a few weeks after Lincoln's assassination, wasn't it? The final yeah, I think that's right. Surrender. Yeah. Do you think yeah. that was the result? The fact that it took that long for portions of, of, of Confederate forces to surrender. I met may have been in Texas, if I'm not mistaken. Were they holding out as the effect as an effect of Booth's assassination of Lincoln or? Or is there no uh, support that? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. I I don't think that Lincoln's assassination had any real play in um, some armies of the South continuing with the file. I think they would have continued with or without Lincoln's assassination. Right? There's a really good movie about this too, The Outlaw Josie Wales. Clint Eastways. Clint Eastwood, <laughs> where you see sort of right the, the individual fervor among uh, the Confederates to, to keep the fight going no matter what. Yeah. Um, and so I'd, I'd highly recommend that film, uh, not as a historical study, but as a sort of outlook on the, 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 the spirit of the South after the collapse of the, the Confederacy. Yeah. Um, what was the, uh, at some point I'd like to, um, feel free to jump in, of course, Eric, any, any time. Um, at some point, maybe we could go back and sort of build back up to Lincoln's assassination, um, mm -hmm. as though uh, the intent was, uh, at least in part, on uh, by Booth to create a sense of crisis, as you point mm -hmm. out nicely, Jason. Mm -hmm. It didn't. I don't know that. Uh, well, again, it didn't have quite that effect uh, in the minds of Northerners, as you were saying, in terms of the almost inevitable outcome of the war. Mm -hmm. But but um, but there is a sense in which Lincoln, of course, a clear sense in which Lincoln's death is a tragedy, especially in light of the fact that it comes so close to the end of the war, but before the official end of the war, and of course before we have a chance to, or Lincoln has a chance to influence, as you said, Jason, the the, the aftermath of the war, what's going to follow, right? There's a, there's a sense of tragedy there, and I also think that that sense of tragedy um, in Lincoln's assassination is heightened by in light of the sort of somber but beautiful reflection on the meaning of the Civil War that he laid out in his second inaugural address, right, just a month or a few months earlier. Yeah. No, I completely agree with that. And it's heightened by the fact that it, it takes place on Good Friday. Um, That's right. Shakespeare, Shakespeare, you know, could it have written it, you know, a, a tragedy any, uh, any more, any more somber and, you yeah. know, and shocking. Yeah. 
Well, and, and that was ironic, too, because Booth had originally wanted to assassinate him on the Ides of March. Right. To, to remind everyone uh, that he was, he was Julius Caesar, um, and then ended up assassinating him on Good Friday and turned him into a martyr um, instead. That's a great point. Um, but uh, what I was going to point out, though, is that I think it's important we remember that the original plot that was put together was not to assassinate Lincoln. The, the original plot was to kidnap the president, mm-hmm. and they were going to take him to Richmond, and they were oh. going to ransom him. And what Booth was aiming for was the restoration of prisoner exchanges, um, because his interpretation of why the South was losing the war was that they didn't have enough soldiers out on the field, and it was because the Lincoln administration had suspended the, these prisoner exchanges. So they were going to kidnap Lincoln when he rode to the soldiers' home. And because it was well known that Lincoln rode by himself and he did so without an armed guard. And so they were going to kidnap him on the road to the soldier's home. And then they were going to somehow transport him to Richmond um, where they were going to hold him hostage. It was only later when Lee ends up surrendering as we get closer to the end of the war that the plot shifts and changes. And, you know, what's interesting is even when you read the scholarship um, on the Lincoln assassination, you know, there, there isn't that one point in time, you know, where Booth sort of like wakes up one morning and suddenly, you know what, we're going to kill the president. Yeah. <laughs> right. it, it just, it, it just kind of evolves. Um, and suddenly the plot becomes more grandiose. Um, it becomes more sinister. Um, we start going from kidnapping to murder and uh, there's this uh, this exchange Booth has with this uh, a confidant named Sam Chester, um, and uh, this was after Lincoln's second inaugural address. And uh, uh, Booth says uh, says to him, um, "I was on the stand, so close to him, nearly as I am to you, and I could have killed him." And uh, Sam Chester says, "You're crazy, John. What good would that do?" And Booth replies, "I could live in history." Uh-huh. Um, and so uh, some part of this is, is indeed, as, as Jason said, you know, an idea of rejuvenating the South, getting the South back into the fight. Some of this was about glory. Some of this was about being remembered as a hero, as this Brutus <clears throat> character. And, and Booth was obsessed with Julius Caesar. Um, and played Brutus in Julius Caesar many times, um, and saw himself in that role, um, and was deeply shocked when, uh, after the assassination, many of the opposition newspapers that had previously called Lincoln a tyrant and had called Lincoln a dictator were now denouncing Booth as a traitor and calling him a murderer and calling him a coward for assassinating the president. And, and Booth was so incensed by this he actually took a page of his journal and wrote out a defense of how heroic he had been on the day of the assassination hmm. um, to try to convince people that what he had done was actually was actually quite heroic and brave. Wow. Um, Wait, uh, those, were, those nor- were those northern democratic newspapers? Or yeah, nor- northern democratic newspapers um, were, were, were as, almost as vociferous as the Republican newspapers in denouncing the assassination. But then again, though, so were Southern newspapers. Um, Southerners were not happy at all about the assassination. Uh, Booth found out about this when he got into Virginia. Um, And, you know, for Virginia, the fight was over. 
I mean, there was just no point in continuing anything. Um, but for them as well, Lincoln in his second inaugural address had made it clear he was going to be very soft on the South. <laughs> I mean, that he was going to show a great deal of mercy. He was going to show a great deal of compassion. Um, they had everything to gain by keeping Lincoln in office and really everything to lose by putting Andrew Johnson um, into the White House um, and, and making him president. And so a lot of people were deeply unhappy uh, in the South that Lincoln had been assassinated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, as part of that, as part of that, um, right, Booth's plot to kill the president, once it transforms itself from, from kidnapping to, to murder, as you, as you point out, Eric, um, Booth's plot is not to just assassinate Lincoln, but to kill other members of Lincoln, the Lincoln administration to throw the leadership of the, the, the federal government into chaos and into question, right? So we're going to kill Johnson as well, Booth says. We're going to kill the vice president. We're going to kill Seward. We're going to throw the leadership of the, 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 uh, the federal government into uh, in, into chaos. So that's, again, that will help the, the South to, that will be to the advantage of the South to, to, to rise up and, uh, and continue the fight. Yeah, because yeah, we, we, we didn't have plans of secession back then. Um, I mean, right. other, other than, you know, if the president dies, the vice president, you know, becomes president. But what if the president and the vice president dies? Well, the assumption was the secretary of state would have to call electors and they would have to select a new president. Well, what happens if you end up killing the secretary of state? Mm-hmm. I mean, this throws the entire government into chaos and nobody has any idea. Um, what, what's to be done. And, you know, for really all intents and purposes, um, it was uh, Secretary Stanton of the War Department that really ran things That's right. for about 72 hours um, after the assassination um, because Johnson was sort of in a state of shock and didn't, didn't really rise to the, the occasion. Um, and Seward was so badly injured from the attack that he was in no condition to help out. So there was a there was a question of how the government would continue. That's interesting. There was a so there was a crisis of the continuation of the government in a certain sense, or a potential crisis. Um, I, I'm curious. A couple of follow-up questions from this uh, on this on the kidnapping that turned into a murder. Was it did it turn or did, did it turn into an assassination? <clears throat> um, how do I do this? Uh, if the initial plan was to kidnap, what what caused them to or Booth to at least abandon the kidnapping? Was there was there ever an attempt at the kidnapping, or did Booth just in his own mind through this combination of mm-hmm. his own sort of ego combined with his changing views on the effect this would have, mm-hmm. did it just sort of morph into an assassination? I'm just curious about sort of the details of this this kidnapping, was there ever really an attempt or why did they abandon that? Yeah, well, I do know that right, Lincoln gives his last public address, which I think was one of our documents yes. uh, for today on, what was it, April 11th, his response to a serenade. And Booth is there outside the White House window with the rest of the crowd listening to, to this speech of Lincoln's. He was there, as, as Eric mentioned, at the his, his second inaugural address as well. And he's listening to Lincoln give this speech. And Lincoln, at one point, uh, begins talking about extending rights of suffrage to freed slaves, uh, to 
black veterans of the Union Army, to the well-educated. And Booth says to a friend, he says, that means Negro voters. That means Negro citizenship, only he didn't say Negro. And he says, that's the last speech he'll ever give. Yeah, right. Yeah. He dies. He yeah. dies yeah. because of this last speech and the idea of extending voting rights, citizenship rights to, to former slaves. Yeah. It incensed Booth, and I think that's the moment that the idea to murder the president begins to ferment in his mind. Yeah. I'm looking, by the way, that's a great point. I'm looking at that last public address right now, and it's... Uh, let's see, it's maybe halfway through, um, and if, if anybody else is looking at the document, it's the paragraph that starts with some 12,000 voters in the heretofore slave state of Louisiana. So he's, I think he's actually talking specifically about the possibility of allowing former slaves who had served in the military to vote in Louisiana, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a first step, of course, right? It's a first step. and. and but, but yeah, yeah, the paragraph right above that, he says, he is talking about Louisiana, you're right there, Chris, he says, it is also unsatisfactory to some that the elective franchise is not given to the colored man. Right. Really. I would myself prefer that it were now conferred on the very intelligent and on those who serve our cause as soldiers. Booth hears that, and he's incensed. It's, he dies. Right, right. And then you, that's a great point. And then in the next paragraph, Lincoln makes the argument about why it would be wrong to deny that to them, especially yeah. after the, um, uh, um, you know, they had served mm -hmm. uh, to the black, if we don't allow at least a portion of the black population, former slave population in Louisiana to, to have the, the, the franchise, to the blacks we say, this cup of liberty which these, your old masters, hold to your lips, we will dash from you and leave you to the chances of gathering the spilled and scattered contents in some vague and undefined when, where, and how, right? So yeah, that that's the talk that Booth picked up on, right? And says mm -hmm. that I mean that was the final straw for him apparently. Yeah, I think that's my. I, that's my I, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they, they they did set up the kidnapping uh, at least once. Uh, oh. Booth 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 contacted all of the conspirators and they set up on the road to the soldiers' home. Uh, he said that Lincoln was going to be heading out to the soldier's home that day, and uh, Lincoln never showed. And scholars are somewhat divided on whether Lincoln was ever supposed to be going out to the soldier's home that day, or whether Booth was trying to make sure that he had involved everybody in the conspiracy in a criminal action so that they were then forever bound to the conspiracy. Um, they, 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 they couldn't get out at that point and would then sign on to anything that Booth wanted them to do. Wow. Were there anybody, were there any defectors from the, the plot, Eric, do you know? Were there any people initially involved or that Booth pulled in who eventually said, no, I don't want anything to do with this? Do you know? Um, you know, there, there's a lot of people who were implicated um, in, in the plot overall. The, the main parties, uh, George Atzerat, Sam Arnold, Mike O'Glaughlin, Ned Spangler, uh, Mary Surratt, Lewis Powell, um, and David Harold, you know, they, they, they all stayed with it um, through the end, although to varying degrees. Um, uh, George Atzerat was the one that was supposed to kill 
uh, Vice President Johnson, and at the last minute he chickened out and, and couldn't do it, um, and then just tried to make his way out of the city. It's one of the things the conspirators really didn't factor on was that all of the bridges out of Washington were closed at 9 o'clock. Um, and so getting out of the city was kind of a big problem for them. Uh, and Booth and Harold uh, are able to, uh, to talk their way over one of the bridges mm -hmm. um, and make it out into Maryland. But uh, the other conspirators are sort of caught up in the city and can't get out. And many of them are caught there wow. uh, overall. Um, there are some uh, individuals that are just really on the periphery that Booth you know, doesn't come right out and, and explain what the conspiracy is about, but, you know, intimates that he's planning something and they kind of tell him, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in getting involved in whatever you're, you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then there are, then there are others who get wrapped up into, um, the, um, the assassination after it takes place. So Dr. Samuel Mudd, who administers aid, uh, to to Booth on his his broken ankle that he suffered when he jumps from the uh, from the balcony at Ford's Theater onto the stage. I think uh, Mud is uh, he's not he's not hanged with the with the others, but he is he is thrown in prison. Johnson will later pardon him. Hmm. Um, so there are others that sort of get wrapped up in into this into this this crisis uh, by encountering Booth along the way of his his escape. Yeah, that's, I find this interesting because I've just <clears throat> happened to be rereading some Machiavelli a few weeks ago, and uh, read the discourses on Libby. He's got that really long chapter on conspiracies mm. and and laying out, you know, how <laughs> there's certain things. He gives examples of conspiracies and the mistakes that people make in conspiracies. And uh, um, and by the way, Eric, the the guy you mentioned who was supposed to kill Johnson is what reminded me of that. Uh, because he couldn't go through with it, and, and, and it, the problem with the conspiracy is always that that possible weak weak link mm. who can't go through with the conspiracy, or who get cold feet in a way and end up revealing something about the conspiracy. So, were there? Did anybody have any? I mean, outside of Booth's sort of circle, do we know? Did anybody have any information in in the in the in the government that that there was a a possible uh, conspiracy brewing, or, or maybe a connected question, especially in our day and age when we're used to seeing elected officials surrounded by secret service. Um, what was security like for presidents in this day? Was there any security? I know there was an armed guard. There was a soldier. Was it a soldier or a Marine, I think? Somebody was stationed outside the door? Yeah. The booth where Lincoln was sitting during the play, if I'm not mistaken. What was the deal with that? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, to your point, a very good question, and, and you know, Eric might be able to say more about this than I can. Um, Lincoln had been facing uh, assassination threats from before he was even president, right? So he's elected, and right, he he comes in to Washington City uh, just before the inauguration in in secret uh, during the night, taking a a secret route into the uh, into the city. Uh, after after leaving Springfield in Illinois, um, and there were and, and and he was called a coward for that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, he was called a coward for that for not coming right sort of right out into the open um, in a parade like style into the into the city. Um, and so, I mean, were there were was was there knowledge in the government of this specific plot from Booth that I'm not aware of? Um, but if 
there was some knowledge of it, it would have been sort of just part of this um, um, this um, continued series of threats made against the president's life yeah. that had sort of become uh, ordinary during during what during uh, during Lincoln's during the the tenure of Lincoln's presidency. Yeah, see, I, I find that fascinating. The, I mean, even the idea of Lincoln writing alone to the to the soldiers' hospital. I mean, uh, what president would, would would do that? Now, maybe that's maybe that's um, again, it's a different time. And as you mentioned earlier, there, you know, Lincoln was the first president to die from an assassination. Was he the first president that was where there was an attempted assassination? No, Jackson. No, Jackson, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. But maybe this idea wasn't, I don't know, I just, I'm just trying to wrap my mind about the idea of Lincoln writing as president, writing around alone without any kind of security. Yeah, I mean, he, he doesn't have, there, there's no Secret Service back then, of course, but Lincoln did um, travel with a, uh, an armed bodyguard okay. um, when, he was, when he would be traveling outside the city. A lot of times an, an okay. armed bodyguard would escort him, not all the time. And as you mentioned, right, there's one there at Ford's Theater. Uh, and then, right, one of his guests is Major Rathbone, um, a veteran himself, and yet the, the soldier posted outside the door somehow is, is, is distracted and leaves his post um, and proves to be useless when, when Booth attacks. Strange. So the cautions, the, the precautions that were, were put up um, simply were, were not enough. Booth found a, his way in. Yeah. It's just, it's just a, it's so strange. <laughs> but again, well, we also we also have to remember. I mean, yeah. Washington D.C. was was an armed camp. I mean, during oh, the Civil War. Yeah. I mean, there there are Union soldiers everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, they're they're not specifically there to protect the president, but I mean, you know, there's there's a very very strong presence of the military um, throughout Washington, and they they actually did have a. Um, a, a platoon of soldiers that were assigned to the White House, but they weren't there to protect the president. They were there to protect the property because visitors kept coming in and stealing things from the White House. Uh. Um, and so they were there to make people like stole the wallpaper off the walls <laughs> and all of this crazy stuff. Um, and so they were actually assigned to the White House to make sure that they weren't doing that. But I mean, you know, Chris, this, this is an era where all you have to do to see the president is stand in line. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. You know, and, and you, you you get in and you can shake his hand and you can get right up close to him. So, I mean... You can walk it, right in the front doors of the White House. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, and again, I, I, I understand that and I get that's a great point. And I also understand that this is, you know, that bit about people calling Lincoln a coward for sort of sneaking in at night into, into D.C. Uh, I understand Lincoln, of course, was, of course, not, I don't think he was a coward. I don't think of him as a coward at all, but... Um, there, there may have been something with this idea that it was that it could be perceived as cowardly to go around uh, with an armed guard. That's, I'm not putting that very well. What am I trying to say? Um, uh, you know, um, it's, I, it's, I, I think it has something to do with uh, the American idea of what the the presidency embodies, what it okay. is, right? So, right, a monarch, a monarch. You, the people never come in contact with a monarch. Um, it's, it's only the, the elite, it's only the few who have access to, to the king. Whereas the American president, the idea is he is, he is not a monarch. 
and therefore he is to be much more open and uh, accessible to the people. And Lincoln sincerely believed that as, as sort of the, the idea of the American presidency itself. And, and after, this, after his assassination, that idea begins to change. Interesting. Because we realize, well, maybe we've taken it too far in the other direction. Because now our presidents are, are hunted down like, like cattle. So interesting. Okay. Yeah, and it's it, it's it's going to take two more assassinations before the Secret Service is tasked with the uh, responsibility of actually protecting the lives of the president. So Garfield and McKinley, right? Yeah, Garfield and McKinley. Um, and it's not until what is it, 1903, I think, um, that they're finally uh, given the responsibility. Um, of, of actually providing protection for the president. I mean, it's, it's just sort of astounding um, that it took as long as it did to assign a, a guard to, to the president. Um, but it's, it's going to take a while for us to get there. Yeah. No, that's, a, that's amazing. But all, all great points. All great points. I mean, especially the, you know, the idea of the, pe- of the president sort of being the people's president and having to be accessible. And, and then, you know, and I, I think, you know, Lincoln and, and men in those days were, not to say that people today are more cowardly. It's a different world. I understand that in some ways. But um, by the way, I can't imagine Andrew Jackson saying, you know, I need a bodyguard around me all the time. I think that would have seemed sort of uh, there. I, I mean, I don't want to say cowardly, I, perhaps unmanly in a, in a mm. sense, uh, as they understood these things back then. Mm. Um, but but this is you know this is this is really interesting. So. Uh, all these things combined, of course, I guess what we're dealing with here is all the sort of pieces that come together to allow this to happen. Um, and we were talking earlier, though, about uh, just a few minutes ago about Booth's motivations for wanting to go through with this. And Nick has submitted a series of questions, I think, which are all sort of getting at kind of the same. It's a very large question, so it, it would require us to back up a little bit. Um, let me just be clear for a second. We've talked about why Booth wanted to go through with this, and we gave a number of reasons why he would want to do that. One, he saw the aftermath or the future perhaps involving uh, black suffrage. One was to throw the government out of line, um, uh, um, sort of uh, out of joint. Um, Another, to galvanize the South to keep fighting. But the larger question sort of beneath the surface here, I think, is one that Nick asks in a couple of different ways. Uh, Nick first submitted a question uh, about whether Lincoln, did Lincoln believe that the Southern states had a right to secede or not. Uh, and then he submitted another question, which is perhaps even more direct and to the point. Was Lincoln more concerned with saving the Union or stopping the spread of slavery? So, I mean, um, you know, look, Lincoln died for some positions he took, or Lincoln died for the positions he took on the Civil War. Um, um, Sorry for not being clear here. I'm working. I'm looking toward a question in my own mind. Um, was Lincoln killed because of his efforts to save the Union, or because of his efforts to end slavery and perhaps move beyond slavery towards greater and greater civil rights? I think before. Uh, I mean, we've talked a little bit about that. Let me just back up for a second. Lincoln himself. I know both of you have written a lot about this and thought a lot about this, and you have very thoughtful views on this. So I'd love to hear you go through this a little bit. Was Lincoln concerned with saving the Union or stopping slavery? I'll stop there. <laughs> Some rambling. <laughs> the big question, I know we're kind of going back to the beginning, but I think it does kind of make sense to do this so we can see what eventually led to Lincoln's assassination. Either of you want to tackle that? 
Well, I mean, the the position I've always taken on this is that I think Lincoln was sincere at the start of the war when he said that his primary um, ob objective was to save the Union. I think you've got that letter to Horace Greeley where Lincoln says, you know, if I can save the Union while freeing all the slaves, I'll do it. And if I can free the if I can save the Union without freeing a single slave, I'll do it. Um, the, the, the goal is to save the Union. By the time of the Emancipation Proclamation, I think Lincoln has figured out that he can't save the Union without ending slavery. Um, that essentially they're two sides of the same coin. Um, the one, the one, it's it's sort of back to the house divided speech. Um, you, the that essentially we can't exist half slave, half free, um, and not be in the midst of civil war as a result of it. And so slavery had to be ended if the union was going to be saved. And so he took the first initial steps um, at uh, ending slavery and then pushed very, very hard um, for the passage of the 13th Amendment uh, so that it would be eradicated completely. Yeah. Yeah, that's very well put. But again, this is such a big question. This could be a, an entire session uh, on its own, right? And um, Eric, you've taught this in, in our master's course, I believe, haven't you? Yes. Yeah, so it, I, I, I hesitate to ask this question because it's uh, it's so big and hard to answer in, in 10 minutes. But but again, the, the, you know, the, 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 as you sort of play with what you just put out there, um, the a lot of the confusion over what Lincoln's aims were, I think, arises from the fact that he only waited to or issue the Emancipation Proclamation on the grounds of military necessity, mm -hmm. right? And um, which led a lot of people to say, well, it's not for Lincoln. It's not really about slavery. Ending slavery is only a means of winning the war and saving the Union. Therefore, yeah, but also in the the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, Lincoln, you're you're right. He does he does emphasize that it's a a necessary war measure uh, to bring the war to a to an end. But he also uh, says in the proclamation that it is sincerely believed to be an act of justice. Yeah. Um, the the freeing of the of the slaves in those areas currently in rebellion against the the government of the United States. So there 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 is certainly this this idea that. Slavery violates the, the laws of nature and nature's God. Um, we, we read the second inaugural for, for today. We didn't read the, the first inaugural, but there in the first inaugural, Lincoln says right at the start of the Civil War that he has no inclination, personal inclination, to interfere with slavery where it currently exists, and he has no legal right to interfere with slavery where it currently exists. He stands merely against the spread of slavery into the territories, to put it as he um, had said elsewhere in many, many speeches, putting slavery back on the course intended by the founders. That is one of ultimate extinction. And um, saving the Union and eliminating slavery, I think uh, Eric's exactly right when he speaks of these two ends, these two purposes being this, the same uh, two sides of the, the same coin, because um, for Lincoln, uh, yeah, his primary purpose is, is to save the Union, um, but more importantly, as he said himself, to make it worthy of the saving, right. to make it worthy of the saving, um, to, to go back to the time of the founding and recognize that slavery is a moral and unjust evil, 
and that it is um, put into the course of, of ultimate extinction. By as, as the Civil War progresses, it becomes clear that um, the option of you know, freeing none of the slaves or freeing some of them and leaving others in, in slave, in, enslaved um, is, is impossible to preserve the, a, a, the union that makes the sacrifice of the Civil War worth it. Oh, that's very well put. And, and, and again, that part you quoted from the Emancipation Proclamation, Jason, that, as everyone knows, that language is so carefully crafted mm. uh, and legalistic in a sense, right? Mm. Because Lincoln is laying out care, as carefully as possible, probably to withstand scrutiny by a Supreme Court uh, 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 case, right? By, yeah. With, which, in which, in which uh, uh, Chief Justice Connie might still be around if it, if, mm. if it gets there. But he lays out in very careful legalistic language the case that it is now a matter of military necessity, and therefore it's a legitimate exercise of executive power in the Constitution, right? Right. So for most of that Emancipation Proclamation, he's speaking from the perspective of a constitutionally appointed or elected uh, you know, executive officer with constitutional limits and responsibilities and powers. Right. But there's that one moment where he lets slip kind of the personal view of Lincoln, as you say, mm. believing it to be a matter of justice. Mm. And that, that's the thing that seems for a lot of people in Lincoln's own day to reconcile. How can he claim to be against slavery and yet not do more to end slavery, right, if he's really against slavery? And Lincoln's continued argument, as you both know, is, um, you know, I, I, I'm paraphrasing here. I'm really putting it, simplifying it. But he has to separate his own personal views with regard to slavery from his, his constitutional responsibilities as President of the United States, which, in, which give him certain powers, but also impose, impose certain limits on what he may or may not constitutionally do. So Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Chris, about that. I think he, Lincoln also has to separate his personal beliefs about slavery from, again, the dictates of necessity. Uh, that is specifically winning the war, because if Lincoln comes out and frees all the slaves at the beginning of the war, the border states immediately go over to the Confederacy, and the whole Union is lost. And with it, the, the, um, the promise of freedom itself right. to all men, white as well as black. Right? So Lincoln, right, it's, this might be apocryphal, but, but Lincoln is supposed to have said, right, I hope to have God on our side in this contest, but I must have Kentucky. Right. The border states, right? You free all the slaves. These are pro-union but pro-slavery states right. that will immediately go over to join the Confederacy if Lincoln takes you know, such a, a, a drastic act, if he doesn't move cautiously, if right. he doesn't move slowly which he is uh, highly criticized for by, by abolitionists uh, in the North uh, in, regards to, in regards to slavery. It's, it's about recognizing the, res the limits imposed not just by the Constitution, but by circumstances themselves. Yeah. Yeah, so it, re it reminds me, by the way, of, um, of course, before Lincoln is elected president, you read his speeches, he's very outspoken, of course, against the extension of slavery, but against the institution itself, as you put it, Jason, as inconsistent with the laws of nature and of nature's God, right? Mm -hmm. And the principles of the Declaration of Independence. He's, but he's not president at that time, and he's very outspoken in his views on slavery. 
Hmm. It seems to me when he's president, he holds those cards a little closer in a way. He's much more careful about revealing or even speaking. Again, he speaks against an extension of slavery, right, because he believes that there is constitutional room to, to deal with that in a way, right? But with regard to his personal view of slavery as a moral evil, he holds those cards more closely to him. But again, from time to time, he lets his, lets his views, I don't want to say slip, as though it was unintentional. I think it was intentional. But you mentioned the Emancipation Proclamation with that line about justice, by the way, which apparently members of his cabinet urged him not to include. Right. Uh, for the very reason that it would reveal a personal um, animus or bias against slavery uh, on, on moral grounds. But the second inaugural address, which again comes right before the end, or close to the end of the war and before his assassination, um, is is um, is a, a, such a, a moving and deep reflection on what you know Lincoln refers to as sort of this national sin or paints as a national sin. What's the cause of the Civil War? The Civil War started because one party wanted to preserve the Union, the other would sacrifice the Union. And even in the speech, in laying out the origins of the Civil War, he talks about the question of preserving the Union. But then, by the third paragraph, it becomes clear that everybody knew that the cause of the war was somehow the institution of slavery. Mm -hmm. And by the end of that beautiful third paragraph, the question is, how long will the, the war last? When will it end? Not until every drop of blood drawn by the by the by the um, lash, right, shall have been repaid by a drop of blood, uh, by a drop of blood drawn by the sword, mm. and 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 of course, in, in, in Lincoln is pointing out that this this um, the problem of slavery is not simply a southern problem. It's a it's a it's a problem of the whole union, including the north. But in his characterization of slavery as a sin, um, if if <laughs> if that isn't very revealing of Lincoln's personal Mm. private moral opinion about slavery, I don't know what is. Yeah. No, you're, I think that's exactly right. And it's the sin, right, to use the language of his second inaugural, it's the sin not of Southern slavery or Confederate slavery, but of American slavery. Right. right. The North is culpable. And, and, and again, I, I, I don't want to draw too much of a conclusion from this, but it seemed like a little bit more, especially after it started to appear... Um, as though the war was moving in the direction of a Union victory. Mm. Lincoln was a little more comfortable with, again, it's still very subtle, but Lincoln was a little more comfortable with, uh, I know that's not the right way to put it, but he, he revealed more uh, his, again, sort of his personal views with regard to slavery. And by the time you get to that last public address, not only is he, um, uh, you know, talking about the sort of impending Union victory. Now he's laying out a moral vision of the future mm -hmm. that moves beyond slavery and involves black suffrage, right? So mm -hmm. I can, I can, you know, from a certain perspective, I can see certain people, perhaps not exactly John Wilkes Booth, but some people saying, ah, see, this was a war to end slavery, right? This was a war about slavery. And um, and Lincoln seems to reveal that more and more as the war progresses, especially toward the end. But it, but then they say, but it wasn't simply a war to end slavery. Now this is this is actually a war to bring about a greater equality, more civil equality uh, among white Ameri between white Americans and and black Americans. And I think that <laughs> pisses a lot of people off. 
Well, you know, I, I, I think it's important to realize that Lincoln goes through an evolution during the war. That's a great um, point. I mean, in, in 1862, we have that very, very infamous address that he makes to the Colonization Society, um, where the, the deputation of Negroes. Um, and, you know, he basically says, the government has purchased a bunch of land down in Panama, and we'd like a bunch of you to volunteer to go and start a colony there. And that's going to encourage other blacks to get on steamers and head down to Panama and start mining and start farming and start doing all. But he, he, he flat out tells them, you, you, the black race and the white race can't coexist. You're the reason there's a war going on. If it wasn't for you, we wouldn't have a civil war. I mean, it's, it's sort of unbelievable, some of the things that, that get said in, in, in this address. And yet... You, except for the first draft of the Emancipation Proclamation, you don't see anything about colonization again out of Lincoln um, after that. I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing about, you know, take, taking blacks back to Africa or taking them to the, uh, Central America or to the West Indies or, you know, these other places and stuff. And I think, I, I think some of this is, is Lincoln observing the heroism of black soldiers in the Civil yeah. War. You know, watching watching what they're able to do when given a chance to fight for their own freedom, and Lincoln is 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 kind of put in his place um, in in seeing this, and then I have to believe that meeting Frederick Douglass had a huge impact on Lincoln. I mean, yeah, I was just going to mention that. Yeah, I mean, you know, Lincoln Lincoln says it's for the first time in his life he meets somebody who's his intellectual equal, and you know, it, and it's a black man. And, you know, these, these arguments that Lincoln has grown up with, that blacks are intellectually inferior to whites and all of it, this is all out the window for Lincoln when he meets Frederick Douglass. And I think it's telling that that second inaugural address, which was is no doubt Lincoln's most important speech, Frederick Douglass was the guy that he wanted to hear from about it. And, and Frederick Douglass got invited to the inaugural ball. Uh, first time a black man was ever invited to the inaugural ball. And Douglas got held up at the door by the guards. They wouldn't let him in. And Lincoln calls out from across the room, that's my friend, Mr. Douglas. You, you, you let him in. And Douglas comes walking over to him and he says, well, he says, you know, Frederick, what did you think of my, my little speech? And he said, Mr. President, it was a sacred effort. And apparently a tear came to Lincoln's eye when he heard this. Um, so so Doug, Douglas really understood the full impact of what Lincoln had to say, but yeah, Douglas had been very critical of Lincoln, of not doing enough to end slavery, of not doing enough to bring about the equality of the races. And even in that, uh, the, uh, the oration in the memory yeah. of, of Lincoln, we see him saying he was emphatically the white man's president. Um, he, he wasn't really a friend to us. Um, but, uh, you know, nonetheless, I, I think the interaction between those two was, had, had a very beneficial effect on Lincoln and a lot of these moral attitudes of how the war needed to turn out. Yeah. Do you think, Eric, by the way, since you brought up that speech, the oration, which I, I, I think is great, I was going to turn to you next. Um, because, because Douglas, I was going to ask something about the, you know, how Lincoln's assassination affects his legacy, right? Um, he's still remembered as one of the most not by everybody, but the most loved presidents and respect, highly respected presidents of all time. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm in Georgia. You have to be careful around that. I know. I was going to say, that's why I put out that caveat. But, <laughs> I mean, I've met people in the South who, in, in 
certain places who have told you know who have actually told me he was a tyrant and uh, anyway um, uh, but but uh, but I was going to talk a little bit about leg Lincoln's legacy, and it seems like Fred Douglas does a lot to help remind us in that oration about mm -hmm. why Lincoln is worthy of respect, despite the fact, as you say, Eric, uh, Douglas says he was throughout most of the war the white man's president, and I, d I get the sense from that oration that Douglas is I mean, not that he's not he's I mean he's saying the truth, but he also seems to me say it in such a way to suggest that Lincoln had to be the white man's president in order to accomplish what Lincoln thought he had to accomplish. And, but, but, so I, I agree with you entirely on that point. But then, of course, Douglas calls him, uh, is it the first, first martyr president or our martyred president? He calls him a martyr president, which I always find to be an interesting term. Hmm. And it's right after, I think he, it's shortly after he talks about Lincoln as a martyr president that he turns to the black man's perspective on Lincoln, right? So the white, the white man, the white men, the white citizens of the country thought Lincoln was their president, looking out for their good and their interests. And even though Lincoln may not have thought of himself as the black man's president, the, Douglas goes through this sort of series of events from the, from the perspective of African Americans who see Lincoln acting with a kind of resolve and purpose, slowly to be sure, again, which Douglas, as you mentioned, was very critical of Lincoln for, but, but, but it's from the, pers it's, uh, from the view of, of African Americans, um, they saw Lincoln sort of slowly and steadily working toward gradual emancipation. Uh, and, and, and of course, everybody remembers that night uh, when the um, Emancipation Proclamation was actually signed and the bells are going off and everybody's celebrating. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I mentioned this only in part because um, you're, uh, you remind us, Eric, that Douglas was very critical of Lincoln, right? It, it, throughout most of um, Lincoln's, pre or at least the early part of Lincoln's presidency. Even, and, of course, Lincoln had a great respect for Douglas. Um, and yet, here, you know, 10 years later, Douglas gives that, that beautiful oration in memory of Lincoln, where he, he seems to do Lincoln great justice without sort of sugarcoating anything. And that's why I like that, that speech a lot, because Douglas being completely honest. And, and yet, even though Lincoln was the white man's president in so many ways, Douglas still does him the justice of, of pointing out why, as a martyr president, he should be respected and remembered. Uh, for sort of time immemorial, right? Yeah, and in, in that same speech where Douglas calls Lincoln the, the white man's president, uh, he concludes that same speech by calling Lincoln our friend and liberator. That's true, yeah. Um, That's a great point. And Douglas, when he hears of, um, right, of Lincoln toying with the idea of colonization early in the war, um, right, I think... Eric's exactly right when he when he speaks of the the effect that that Douglas has on Lincoln and how Lincoln viewed the Civil War. Douglas says to him, "You know what are you talking about? We're Americans. We're not Africans. We're 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 not you know we we we're not going to go back to to Africa or or, or to some other colony. We're Americans." Yeah. Um, and that uh, that relationship with Douglas, I think, has has a lot to do with how Lincoln. Uh, understands the meaning of the Civil War and the significance of the sacrifice involved from 
um, from the black soldiers yeah. uh, moving forward. No, that's a that's a wonderful point, and again, um, uh, that point that, that you're mentioning and that Eric brought up earlier about the, the impact that meeting with Douglas had on Lincoln, I think that's vitally important because, um, uh, again, for the reasons uh, you both mentioned, uh, Lincoln, I think you're right, really didn't see how the two races could, could live together peacefully, even in a post-Civil War world. It was Douglas who seems to have moved him in the direction of thinking that it was possible for the two races um, uh, to live together as Americans, right? So I, I, you can't, I don't think, I, Eric, I think you're exactly right. You can't underestimate the uh, impact and importance of that friendship with, with Douglas. Yeah, and, uh, just one, one real quick last thing on that speech of, of Douglas's. I mean, sure. towards the end, this is the third to last paragraph, um, Douglas speaks of the, the crowning crime of slavery. The crowning crime of slavery was the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Right. He says the crowning crime of slavery, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. It was a new crime, a pure act of malice. No purpose of the rebellion was to be served by it. It was the simple gratification of a hell-black spirit of revenge. But it has done good after all. It has filled the country with a deeper abhorrence of slavery and a deeper love for the great liberator. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a that's a great point, and and it again reminds me when Lincoln, or sorry, when Douglas calls Lincoln our martyr president. Uh, I think that again, in light of what you were just saying, Jason, is is Douglas's way of saying he died because of his desire to end or have the effect of ending slavery. That's why he was assassinated. Yep. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so that's, uh, again, a, a wonderful point. Um, I was looking for a poem. I was looking up the title. Uh, is it, uh, what's the name of the poem? I'm just drawing a blank. I was trying to find the name of this great poem that another colleague of ours, Jason, often brings up in, in our conversations um, about, about the, ah, uh, oh, shoot, I'm drawing a blank. I, I'll look it up and, 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 uh, and maybe type it in the chat box. There's a great poem about Lincoln's assassination. Is it the My Captain? Oh, Captain, My Captain? Is it My Captain, My Captain? I'm not sure if that's the one I was thinking of. Um, could be. It could be it. It's the one about uh, um, uh, well, there's My Captain, Oh, Captain, My Captain, there's that one, and then there's another one, though, about um, the hands of the people. I'm trying. I just drawn a blank on it. I'll, I'll look it up, and, and, and I don't want to get us distracted too much here. Um, about about how there's this sense of uh, the sort of desire for revenge on the part of the people uh, to, to, um, after Lincoln's assassination, and how the effect of the link of Lincoln's assassination would be would be um, that the North would now turn toward more vengeful measures toward the South in the aftermath of the war. Yeah, though, that's a really good point, because um, that was the sentiment um, that was pervasive throughout the North at the time of Lincoln's second inaugural. Um, there are these cries going out for revenge as the, the war seems to be coming to a conclusion um, by early March 1865. There are many in the North who are crying out for revenge against the South, and Part of the purpose of the second inaugural is to is to calm them down, right? 
right? Because he ends with right the famous you know phrase with with malice toward none, with charity for all, um, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, so on and so forth. It's the 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 tone is one of not of revenge but of forgiveness, which goes back to to Eric's um, excellent point about how the South had everything to gain by keeping Lincoln alive because he's talking about charity and forgiveness, not revenge. With Lincoln's assassination, the North is transported back to seeking revenge, and you end up having a a much harsher, a much harder reconstruction than Lincoln ever imagined. Yeah, great. That's that's great, Jay. And I found the poem I was thinking of. It's actually by Herman Melville, Hmm. called The the Martyr, um, which was a a very, very widely read um, uh, poem in, in Lincoln, in the aftermath of Lincoln's assassination. Um, and he talks about how the uh, the effects of this assassination are now going to fall very heavily upon the South, um, and they're going to mourn. They will actually end up mourning and, and regretting and, and ruining, so to speak, the, the assassination of Lincoln. If anybody wants to look it up, it's it's called "The Martyr" by Herman Melville. It's really a great, interesting poem. Um, so, on that point, by the way, others have asked. Larry uh, submitted a question a long time ago then about about how Lincoln's assassination did affect uh, Reconstruction or or didn't affect Reconstruction. Um, so, oh, by the way, Angela found the poem before I did. Great, thanks, Angela. The Martyr by Herman Melville. It's a great poem. So, Eric, go ahead, please. Oh, I'm sorry, I thought you wanted to jump in, Eric, on this on the question of Reconstruction. Oh well, I, I mean, this is the. <laughs> This this is the the question um, that everybody asks. Uh, would would Reconstruction have been different uh, if Lincoln had had been alive? And I, I mean I think there is uh, a scholarly view that Lincoln's legacy would probably not be what it is today if he had lived through Reconstruction. Um, that uh, sur- surviving the politics of Reconstruction intact would have been would have been very difficult for him. Um, I mean, there were, there were things that certainly would have been different. Uh, Lincoln would, would certainly have signed the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Uh, he certainly would have signed the Freedmen's Bureau Bill. Um, uh, he would have um, uh, not alienated uh, Republicans that way and perhaps would have nullified um, getting so many radicals. Uh, elected in 1866 and in 18. He, he also wouldn't have been impeached. So. Yeah, I, I, he also also would 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 not have been impeached. <laughs> um, I, I think he would have been given a lot longer period of time um, to kind of orchestrate and uh, direct Reconstruction uh, than than Johnson was given um, over those policies. You know. And and would have certainly supported the 14th and 15th Amendments. Um, I think there's no question about that as well. You know, would he have been any more successful in bringing about, you know, fundamental change in the South? I I think that's where people find themselves a lot more skeptical. Very interesting. So Lincoln is assassinated. Johnson then becomes president. How long does it take Johnson to – maybe this is – Sounds like a, a, a joke question. How long did it take Johnson to get into the swing of acting as president? <laughs> and I mean that as a serious question. Mm-hmm. And and how how I guess when when did Johnson start to sort of really pick up the 
if he did, uh, uh, sort of trying to take the lead in shaping uh, reconstruction policy. Um, that's one question I have. Another question is, in light of what you were just raising, Eric, did re radical, re you know, what they call radical Republicans, did they gain in strength in, in Congress in the aftermath of the Civil War? Yes, um, but a, a lot of that was due to Johnson. Um, ah, okay. Johnson... Johnson broke precedent and actively campaigned against radical Republicans in the 1866 midterm elections. And at one, at one particular rally, um, somebody in the crowd yelled out, we should hang, hang all the traitors like Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee. And Johnson yelled back, if you really want to hang the traitors, you should be hanging Charles Sumner and Thaddeus Stevens. Um, and uh, call, calling for the lynching of sitting members of Congress is probably not your best idea um, as, as president of the United States. And that actually became one of the articles of impeachment against him um, when Congress tried to remove him from office. Uh, so uh, he, he was, uh, you know, just in, in incredibly tongue deaf, um, had no intention of, of trying to work with the radicals and uh, inflamed passions against him um, in the electorate. Uh, so he was, he was hated from the beginning, essentially. Um, you know, for, for about the first six months to, to a year, he seemed to be following in Lincoln's footsteps. I mean, he announces his own reconstruction plan, which doesn't look all that different than Lincoln's. Um, his pardon policy looks a little bit tougher than Lincoln's. I think he's got something like seven additional requirements or categories of people who can't get pardons than, than Lincoln had. Um, but, it, you know, it looks like he's going to follow largely in Lincoln's footsteps. And then uh, as the black codes start getting passed, Congress moves to act, passes the Civil Rights Bill, passes the Freedmen's Bureau Bill. Uh, Lyman Trumbull um, comes over to the White House and says... You know, it would really be a good idea if you passed these. Um, I could see big trouble ahead if you stood opposed to these things. And Johnson said, don't worry about it. I'm going to sign them into law. And then the next day vetoed them. Um, and Trump, Trumbull was, felt personally betrayed uh, and was extremely angry about it. Um, but he predicted it exactly right. Uh, Congress turned against Johnson at that point. Yeah, um, and it was it was pretty much all downhill from there. So do you, do we think this is just a lack of prudence on Johnson's part, or is it um, is it the Johnson uh, um, Johnson was on board with Reconstruction insofar as it again sort of reconstructed uh, or helped to um, um, restore society in a post-slavery world, but perhaps Johnson wasn't willing to go so far personally didn't, didn't support the kinds of civil rights reforms that Lincoln himself seemed to favor, even in terms of, of black suffrage and things like that. Do we, do we know that about Johnson? His views on black suffrage, for example, or, and um, black, uh, black Americans holding office, was he opposed to those things? And we, yeah, he, 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 was, he was opposed to that. His yeah. uh, uh, State of the Union message of 1867 um, said in so many words, uh, there's never been a successful black society in the history of the world. Um, blacks have never been able to organize politically, have never been able to set up a successful government. Um, why would we expect them to be able to do that here? Um, and I, placing this stuff in a State of the Union message, I mean, it's, it's just inconceivable um, that, that a president would, would say such things. Um, but, uh, I mean, 
in fairness to Johnson, he was a Democrat. Um, I mean, he, he, he wasn't a Republican. And um, the South did a lot to start courting Johnson once he became president. So all those rich white Southerners who had shunned Johnson as a young man and, and had looked down on his family as poor white trash now we're seeking audiences with him in the White House, and we're seeking to make him part of the old gentleman's club. And Johnson found himself very receptive to these things. Um, he, he, you know, uh, uh, sought to be included and um, uh, liked being courted and uh, increasingly found himself on the side of the Democrats. That's a, that's a, Eric, so that's such a great point, especially when you... <laughs> take that aspect of Johnson's character and contrast it with Lincoln, who himself came from, a, from in some ways, an even poorer background, and yet was never captured by that, that desire to be loved and, and flattered and, and things like that. Um, the fact that Lincoln could resist that and, and hold true to what he found to be good and just uh, contrasted with Johnson is very revealing um, about both of them, actually. It's, a, it's, just, a, it's just a wonderful point. So, I, I, again, I know there's a big debate over, over the nature of Reconstruction, and even, as you said, Eric, or suggesting earlier, um, uh, um, well, I guess the big question is always, um, did Reconstruction succeed or fail? That's always a big question, right? And um, I, I guess depending on that, how you answer that would lead, uh, I guess, back to the question of whether had Lincoln lived, would Reconstruction have been more successful? I'm, there's a question in there somewhere, but I'm, I'm just throwing it out there at the end here because we just have a minute or two left, and um, it may be too big to consider here. But, um, but again, in, in the sense that we don't know, uh, because Lincoln was assassinated, we don't know how he could have affected um, uh, Reconstruction. Uh, by the way, which Lincoln didn't like, right? Lincoln didn't like the term Reconstruction. Am I correct about this? Yeah, he preferred, I think, the the re-inauguration re of the national authority. Re-inauguration, okay. I think it's a phrase that he, he used is instead of Reconstruction. So we can note some things that Lincoln probably would have done, as, as you were saying earlier, Eric, but, but he didn't, I don't think Lincoln, my sentence anyway, is that Lincoln was not, would not have been in favor of the actual the concept of rebuilding or reconstructing Southern society in the vision that some of the more radical Republicans had or seem to have in the aftermath of, of the Civil War. Um, yeah, you know, plan, plans for seizing private property and redividing it among the former slaves, I, I, I just have a lot of trouble seeing Lincoln being supportive of those ideas. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And again, so this is partly what makes it a tragedy. I mean... <laughs> Uh, Lincoln's not around to help affect these things in a way that could have been done better. Um, and, you know, and, and again, in all fairness, uh, um, the effects in the South are, are bad, um, right, for, for both white Southerners and for blacks, especially for black Southerners as a result of the Jim Crow laws and others that sort of emerged out of these, um, out of this time. So it's a, there's a hard road ahead and, um, uh, um, you know, after after the Civil War, in terms of uh, the future of civil rights and equal rights, and uh, maybe we'll pick that. I think we will pick that theme up at uh, at a later time in the, our webinar series at some point in the spring. I'm sure. So, 
So maybe we'll springboard off some of the things that we talked about today when we get to that point at some, at some time in the spring. But anyway, we've come to the end of our time, and I want to thank you both again for, for your time twice, two months in a row. Um, um, and again, Jason will be back next month. Did you know that, Jason? You're coming back? I will. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good to me. So, uh, but I really do thank you both for your time and thoughts and your knowledge on these subjects. It's very useful, very informative. And uh, I learned a great deal as always. So thanks to you both. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Chris. And just one real quick thing. I'd oh, like please. to just want to recommend um, uh, a text here. Uh, Manhunt, the 12-day chase for Lincoln's killer by James Swanson. Uh, if you're looking to, to study uh, the assassination of Lincoln and its immediate aftermath in a bit more detail than what we were able to do here, this is uh, really a, a wonderful, a wonderful book. It's it's uh, meticulously um, researched, but it's compelling. It's not an academic work by any means, so uh, it's it's popularly accessible um, to our to our attendees here. Uh, if you haven't already read um, Manhunt by James Swanson, uh, I'd, I'd highly recommend it. Great, thank you, Jason. Um, I've also got some recommended reading, by the way. Um, pick up Eric Sand's book. Uh, Eric didn't pay me to say this, but uh, pick up Eric's book on, uh, it's called American Public Philosophy and the Mystery of Lincolnism. It's outstanding. Uh, so uh, pick up, I strongly recommend that. Uh, pick up a copy and help put Eric's kids through college someday. Uh, <laughs> and then further, even further reading, uh, given that tomorrow is November 19th, I recommend that you all pull out your copy of the Gettysburg Address tomorrow and, and take a look at that again. So um, I think it's is it the 154th anniversary, I, I believe. Uh, yeah. So um, have fun with that. Uh, again, thanks everybody for joining us. Um, just a reminder about the email with the link that you can uh, use to get a certificate of participation. Let me just mention quickly, our next Saturday webinar will be December 2nd, so just two weeks from now, I believe. And the topic that day will be the sinking of the USS Maine. And as I mentioned, we'll be joined again by Professor Stevens, as well as Jennifer Keene of Chapman University. So looking forward to another lively conversation then. Thanks again, and have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs as well as information about future programs at tah.org webinars or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.